0: Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim, and I have an introduction to another wonderful episode with one of my favorite guests. Before um, I head on out the door here to see American Graffiti at uh, a drive-in, I wanted to record this to basically remind you, please visit nowplayingnetwork.net. We just received a donation for all the shows on the network From one Carrie Finnegan, which I could not be more grateful for. I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart to receive um, a very, very kind donation. That helps to cover the costs for the website, as well as the RSS feeds for each of the podcasts. So, again, it truly means a lot. Thank you, Carrie, once again. And if you have anything to spare, click on the donate link over at nowplayingnetwork.net, and send what you can to support not only this show, but all of the shows, particularly uh, Vinyl Emergency, which recently had a terrific interview with the one and only Matthew Sweet, uh, who was also a guest on the Pop Culture Club not too long ago. Well, probably a year ago. But um, yeah, I think Jim Hankey did a fantastic job following up with him and checking in with Matthew, and it was a great listen. Also supporting characters hit another home run with guest Jeremy Ritchie, editor and co-creator of the quarterly print journal Art Decades, which I am going to be picking up some copies of myself. There's also Fresh Perspective, and they started the parody spoof theme this month with the classic Mel Brooks comedy, Young Frankenstein. So you got to check that one out. Uh, I believe their second episode will be coming up not too uh, long from now with uh, Walk Hard, uh, a movie I absolutely love and think is underrated. Uh, also, don't forget Movie Madness did an hour-plus episode on the Nate Parker controversy, which was very, very interesting to hear about, featuring um, the same guest you're about to hear on this episode. And the one and only Tracks of the Damned, hosted by Patrick Rappole, is Going strong. It's getting better and better with every episode. The most recent episode features guest Chris Olson as they talk about one of my favorite films, Carnival of Souls. A really great listen, indeed. Check that out. So, all of those shows could use your support either through a donation or you can simply write a review over on iTunes. Spread the word via social media and, of course, just through simple word of mouth. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your pets. (laughs) Tell your barber, uh, tell your garbage man, tell every single person that you can about the Now Playing Network, Directors Club, Vinyl Emergency, Supporting Characters, Fresh Perspective, Movie Madness, and Tracks of the Damned. Oh my goodness, you got such great content to look forward to every week. I know I do. Um, So yeah, let people know about these shows. It means so much. Uh, When you do such things, because we put a lot of hard work into these uh, podcasts, you know, coming up with the content, booking a guest, recording the episode, editing the episode, putting it up for download. So this is a labor of love, a true passion project from everyone involved here. And I could not be more honored to have all these shows a part of the Now Playing Network family. And as I state towards the end of this episode, I will be taking a couple weeks off, so the next episode won't be up. The next official Directors Club episode won't be uh, available until probably the third week of September, so about three weeks or so around there, and oddly enough, my next guest was going to be Chris Olsen, so that's going to be great. You're going to love that episode, I guarantee it. Um, So yeah, look forward to that towards, uh, I guess like the third week of September or so. And until then, um, visit com and go back to the archives, re-listen to favorite episodes, check out ones you may have missed. There's a lot of great content, a uh, hundred plus episodes to check out in this, you know, sort of vacation time, downtime I'll be having here for just a, a couple of weeks. So thanks again, everybody. And now, On to a great discussion on a director I now consider to be one of my top ten favorites, a true pioneer. I'm, of course, talking about Nicholas Ray.
1: All this hogwash about self-expression, permissiveness, development patterns. God was wrong. You're tearing me
0: apart! You, You say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! You know you're gonna talk I'm gonna make you talk I always make you punks talk Why do you do it? Why? Why? There's nothing like a good smoke and a cup of coffee Every time I wake up, I feel just like a cat Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast I am Jim Laskowski And I am very excited to uh, not only introduce my guest, but talk about this th- this incredible filmmaker by the name of Nicholas Ray. But first and foremost, I want to introduce to you uh, a man who is essentially a a walking encyclopedia of film knowledge. <laughs> and uh, he's been on the show uh, several times. Um, Stanley Donan, Michael Curtiz, uh, Vincent Minnelli. Three other great directors that uh, I was very grateful that he came on the show for. Welcome back once again, Sergio Mims. Thank you so much.
1: I must tell you how much I love doing this. I I really do. I really (laughs) do. I I love talking about movies, of course. And I love talking about directors, and particularly directors who I really love. You know, it's
0: not work for me. It's just two guys talking about movies. Exactly. And not only that, you know, because this this has become my my education, my, you know, uh, my class, essentially. Because I am mm-hmm. going back and learning so much, mostly by just watching the films. I mean, I do a little research here and there, but overall, I just absorb these older films that, in some cases, that I've never seen, and it's the thrill of discovery that really gets me excited to talk. Because, honestly... I know it's a cliche, but that that expression of they don't make them like they used to is really starting to hit home for me more and more when we go back and talk about the directors that we've talked about so far. Cuz I yeah. think a name like Nicholas Ray in particular, he's he's made some films that I would consider to be all-time favorites and they don't they don't come close to the stuff that gets made nowadays. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree.
1: Well, you know, um, there was an article in uh, uh, com earlier this week about mm. this summer's movies. Oh, yeah. And the basic point of the – it was a really well-written piece, and I'm sorry if the writer of the piece lifts my ma- name uh, lifts my mind right now. But you should go back, folks, and read it because she talks about the summer films and how basically it was just so revealed to contempt – the studios have for film, for the film audience today. Right. It's really it really is contempt. They don't care about you. They don't care about the movies. They just make any kind of crap they want to because they figure you're stupid enough to go out and see it. <laughs> now, as a result, a lot of movies that came out this year tanked or didn't didn't do nearly as well as they thought they were going to do, such as Tarzan. Very true. Um, Independence Day, Resurgence. Um, A a suicide squad is struggling. They may talk about how much money is doing worldwide, but it's struggling, you know. Um,
0: It's just other contempt for the audience. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing sometimes when something like The Witch opens wide, but... um I I, that was earlier this year for one thing, but throughout the summer it was there was just nothing to look forward to in terms of escapist entertainment in a multiplex. You really did have to go out to the Siskel Center or the Music Box or the Landmark Century to catch, you know, any number of independent films that have come out. I mean, I, I remember feeling that way about Green Room in particular when that. That movie first oh, came I out, love Green Room I, told, I was telling everybody that could be a big hit If the studios released it right But it wasn't I said the same thing about Nice bo- uh,
1: nice Guys Yeah, that too I said, why are they releasing this picture Just at the beginning of the summer onslaught? Right I mean, what are you, what are you guys thinking about? This film could have been a hit Could have been a hit
0: Yeah I, I'm Or it, a Midnight Special mm-hmm. What is is doing? Mm-hmm. You're blowing it. What's the matter with you guys? I don't know. The wrong people are in charge. <laughs> it, and then it's you're really all this
1: money on Tarzan. And it, I, look, look, don't you know, nobody wants to see Tarzan. Nobody wants to see Ben-Hur. I, what, really? <laughs> Ben-Hur? Uh, a lousy yeah. remake of Ben-Hur? And then a couple weeks ago, in Variety, there was a front-page story about how the box office analyst they had uh, done tracking, and it was tracking poorly, and that the film was going to flop, and they were shocked. I was like, gee, you're shocked that Ben-Hur is going to (laughs) flop?
0: You know, people, give people the benefit of the doubt, too. There are smart moviegoers, not just just critics who are complaining here. It's the general moviegoing public that also feels this way.
1: You know? the, the public knows it too. The public is like, you know, my mother has an expression, which is when she likes a movie, she says, that was finished. <laughs> I don't know what she got the expression from. That's really cool. But what she meant was, what she means is that, that that's a really well made, constructed movie. It was a finished, it had a finished quality. And, and I think about that every time if you see a movie that really satisfies you at the end, I, I, think of my, I think of what my mom says. She said, Yeah, that was finished. There's nothing like that this summer. No. Not, was there any movie that came out to go, like, Yeah, wow, that was great? No.
0: Nope, it, it's been it's been pretty abysmal, and that's why more than ever now we need uh, the the big Oscar contenders. The 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 the, yeah, the fall season you. roll will roll around, and hopefully fall is
1: my season now. Fall fall has been my season now for years. You know, right. I just can't wait to co- with what's, uh, what's coming out in the fall. I, I was just looking at a list, a, par- a very very small partial list of what's coming out. This fall, and I was like, that looks interesting, that looks interesting that looks good that looks good well, i didn 't know about this one that looks good you yeah know, I, right Th- from starting from mid September to you
0: know the end of the year that's going to be what I look for now, you know on the flip side i like to, I like to try and look on the bright side of things, and even though most of the time when I would look at what 's playing at the local multiplex, I would go oh." I don't want to see that. I don't really care about that. That's gotten bad mm-hmm. reviews. Forget it. Uh, another comic book movie. Forget it. Which got me to places like the music box to see The Red Shoes, you know? I mean, it only played a couple times as, like, their weekend matinee, but hey, I got to see The Red Shoes on the big screen, and, you know, that's that's the upside is, like, okay, there's nothing interesting um, in the multiplex, but, you know, you're... Your music box, your Cisco Center, they they're a huge reason why I'd make the extra effort and drive an hour and sit in traffic because I'm like I get this I get this experience to see an older film on the big screen and that's there's nothing like that. In fact, I know with your film festival coming up that you can plug really quick here well, to Sleep it's, with it's anger it it's ends next week <laughs> Oh yeah so how long has it been going on?
1: Oh, Twenty-two years.
0: Oh, oh wow! Of, but but but
1: but but yes, it's always the month of of August. We're talking about the Black Harvest Film Festival.
0: Yes, Black Harvest Film Festival. And, right.
1: and um, um, I, I will. I there's some good news I can tell you at the end about this in terms of a particular movie. Uh But um. Yeah, it's been going on for 22 years. The entire month of August, we're showing 50 movies. My God. Wow. Just more every year, which is why it takes a month. Sure. And it's films of black cinema from around the world, as much as we can, and even locally made films here, too. Hmm. And um, last year, we hit, and, and not only did we blow past our goal. We always have a certain attendance goal. Not only did we blow past that, we went way beyond it
0: oh, last wow.
1: year—the the biggest ever. And That's great. from what I understand, it looks like we're going to be very close to that this year, which makes me, considering that the fact that I I I couldn't get Birth of a Nation, I tried, I couldn't get Southside with You, I tried, <laughs> but um, it, it's it just happened. It, it, It makes me very happy. It has, because we've been around for so long, we are literally one of the three premier film festivals in the country, along with Pan-African Festival in Los Angeles and Urban World, which is next month in New York. And we're the third. Um, We don't We even have to even work hard now to get movies, because now so many filmmakers come to us. Oh, that's great. Saying that, please show our movie with Dinah. I mean, we had so... Many submissions this year i 'll be honest we couldn't get through them <laughs> and we we literally could not get through them and and um it was just we just can 't get through it. we just have to take what we can find sure. and put together and God knows what's going to happen next year um, so i 'm very happy we still have another uh it ends September first, so we just have just a little over a week to go right and um Well, I'm I'm excited because... Literally, literally, I'm already looking at movies for next year. (laughs) There's usually one film, which is... Well, you have to do it like that. Wow. You have to do it like that. Sure. And one film, which is showing at Toronto, which when I heard about it, I said, oh, if I don't get this for next year, (laughs) I I have to get it for next year. Have to.
0: Well, I'm excited because I'm going to do my best to come out to see a movie that I've been meaning to see for a very, very long time, and that's to sleep with anger.
1: Uh, yes, this is the this is the restored print. Um, it was shown last year, actually, at Chicago National Film Festival. Yeah, I, I, um, I missed it then. Yeah. And, and before then, it premiered at Venice last year, Venice Film Festival. Cool. But we are showing it. It is a it is a, the restored print. It is a magnificent movie. It yeah. is, I think one of Charles Burnett's greatest movies. Maybe his best, maybe, but Killer Sheep is still pretty awesome. And it's hard to explain because it's a drama with comedy. It definitely deals with the supernatural about this older couple in which um, they have a very quiet life, living in a nice middle-class neighborhood in Los Angeles, and an old friend of theirs from... The past shows up at the door, played by Danny Glover. And I remember being on the set of this movie. I, I, oh wow. I was work, working on films at the time, and I remember hanging around the set because I know Charles. I know Charles forever, and Charles Burnett. And I remember hanging around the set and watching him work this picture. And Jar- Glover uh, shows up, and he's—it's hard to—I don't want to give it away, but no, don't. Let's just say he's sort of like an evil presence. Now hmm. it's not a horror film. Don't get that. Don't misinterpret what I say. But he's he causes some conflict in more ways than one. Interesting. In this okay. movie, and the final scene in the movie it's so darkly funny. I won't even, I won't. I will not give it away. I can't. But it's clearly playful for laughs. But it's it's funny. It's weird, and it's human. Hmm. You know, because when you see it, when you see what happens, and the reaction of people, that's what people would have done in a situation like that. Now, I won't give it away. You have to see it for yourself. Yeah. It's very funny.
0: Yeah, I remember Nick singing the praises of this one back in the day on WGN, and I was like, yeah. I don't know why. It, it seemed like it was one of those movies that was really hard to track down and find.
1: You have to see it for yourself, but it feels lived in Mm. It is so lived in, and, so, and sometimes when I see the picture, I am reminded so much. He captures it so well of hanging around my father's relatives. Oh wow! That's and how trailer. they interact and things they do. It's just I said, gee, I remember when I was ten years old and blah 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 blah. And
0: it's it's he, he's he's a wonderful wonderful director. Well, speaking that's a good transition, sir. Speaking of wonderful directors, okay. Nicholas Ray <laughs> Well I think of all the movies This director made And how they are amazing In many different ways Like they live at night In a lonely place Bigger than life Wind across the Everglades from without a cause Bitter victory Sha la 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 la, Nicholas Ray. Sha la 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 la
1: la, Nicholas Ray. Sean Luca Dar really loved him. Yeah. Sha la 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 la, Nicholas Ray. Nicholas Ray. Nicholas Ray. Nicholas Ray. Um, the the tragic, the self-destructive, the brilliant Nicholas Ray. I, I, as, you know, I, I said there are very very few directors who are as naked about themselves as Nicholas Ray was on screen. When you see his films, in many of his films, he is revealing himself, his inner turmoils, his marital problems, relationships, his sexuality, his bisexuality which got him into trouble. He, he had a fascinating life, which I'll get into. A fascinating life. How did he, he get into movies? Well, let's name some of the movies, first of all. Some of the great films. Bigger Than Life. Yes. In a Lonely Place. Yes. On Dangerous Ground. Yeah. Johnny Guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, Party Girl. Which I, I haven't seen tremendous. it yet, but I will. Uh, um, you know, you can just go on and on. Uh, Rebel Without a Cause, of course. Of course. Um there are, futurely, there are, unfortunately, some movies um, that are hard to see. Um, one film I have never seen, because it's never been released, gosh, how sadly. It's never been released in any kind of format, except once, very briefly, in The Savage Innocence, which was his next-to-last movie.
0: Right. I couldn't is, track that one down. Yeah. Um
1: deals with Eskimos. Um in Northern Canada. Hmm. And it was shot on location in Northern Canada and in Italy with Anthony Quinn, in which he plays at Eskimo, in which um, how he deals when modernity and when the real world encroaches on his life and culture. <sighs> and um, unfortunately, is not available anywhere. It was very, very briefly released a couple years ago on DVD in Britain, and then it was quickly pulled. Huh. Because there was a rights problem. Uh. And it's never been released in any format. And interestingly, that film, like his last three movies, were all shot in 70mm super te- technorama. Wow. And um, I would love to see it on the big screen. Yeah, no kidding, you know, right? Just, I've never seen it. Well, I've never it, seen it.
0: After indulging in a number of his films these past couple weeks, I can safely say that he is among a list Of favorite directors for me I mean, I can't The ones Mm. I watched They all got under my skin They all, like, haunted me In in the best way possible I mean, but they're also Grounded and down-to-earth And very humanistic But he subverts your expectations And they're often You know, uh, they sneak up on you uh, uh, Sometimes they change tone Yes, they do That's a great
1: way to put it They do sneak up on you Yeah They do yeah, well, I mean, he, um, he grew up in... himself being more and more drawn in as the film the film goes along. He yeah. he had a knack for picking projects that were suited for him. Yeah, of course, like any director, he did stuff that he didn't care about. Uh, he did it for money, whatever. But there were, pro- uh, most of his projects, he had this nerve, he had an eye. He just knew this is what I'm drawn to. I see something in here that appeals to me, that from my life, I can draw something from it.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, he he led a mostly early on a simple Midwestern life. I mean, he grew up in Wisconsin, then relocated to Chicago. And I know, although he spent one semester at UIC, he wound up, uh, you know... Well, well,
1: University of Chicago, right. USC, Uh
0: Yeah, Actually, actually he had lived
1: in Chicago before. He was, for a little bit of background, he was born in 1911. He died in 1979, age of 68, from cancer. He died the same week John Wayne died. (laughs) Right, yeah. And he had directed John Wayne in one of his movies, uh, Flying Leatherneck. Mm -hmm. Um, But he actually spent most of his childhood in Chicago living with his younger sister I'm sorry older sister oh okay uh, because basically he had a terrible childhood his father was an alcoholic Mm -hmm. and everything was a gene because that gene definitely passed on to Ray Uh, and by the way Nicholas Ray was not his real name oh what was it his real name was Raymond Nicholas I'm gonna mess up this uh, I'm gonna mess up his last name but Kynesil Kynesil nicholas raymond nicholas kainzo jr that was his real name and he um right it is a mouthful (laughs) and well growing up he told a story once about how i remember when he was a kid in wisconsin he would regularly go out into the bars to try to find his father to bring him home drunk
0: Oh man that's rough so he right so he
1: lived with his sister when his childhood right he went to college He came back, went to the University of Chicago, didn't graduate. He got thrown out because of drunkenness, his Mm -hmm. alcoholism. Already then, he was drinking. Yeah. Um, He amazingly somehow befriended Frank Lloyd Wright. (laughs) Right. And Frank Lloyd Wright gave him um, Teleus and scholarship to study architecture. We're talking now in the early 30s. And Frank Lloyd Wright threw him out. Because Ray kept having gay affairs with other students,
0: oh wow! So I didn't know that. he hmm. threw
1: him out. Right, he threw him out. He went to New York, and very much got he got married when he was in New York,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, to his first wife. And he um, got involved in the theater movement, particularly the leftist socialist theater movement, socialist agipop. That was very popular then. And he, he became friends with Nick Kazan, uh, Nicholas Kazan.
0: Elia Kazan?
1: It, and, uh, sorry, n- yeah.
0: Elia. Right.
1: Nicholas is his son. Sorry. Yeah. It's his son. Elia Kazan, Kazan and John Kazan and Joseph Losey, And he got involved with those guys. And, it's a good group. Um, <laughs> it's a good group. Yeah. And then he also got started getting involved in radio. Hmm. And uh, working for the Voice of America with John Hausman at the time, before he became a producer and later became more known as an actor, uh, was working for. And by the early 40s, believe it or not, the FBI started a file on him.
0: Oh, geez.
1: Because of his leftist activities, socialist activities, and also because of the fact that he hung around too many black people. Wow. Really well, it's just a Hoover, right.
0: Yeah, that's and true. And he
1: directed a play, um, a Duke Ellington musical, which the name of which I cannot remember hmm. now. The only play he ever directed. But then, how did he get to Hollywood? He went to Hollywood when Nick when I Nick Kazan. Either Kazan goes to Hollywood to direct a tree called, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Right. So he brings Kazan over. I'm sorry, he brings Ray over to be his assistant. Nice. Works out fine. Then, two years later, John Houseman is in Hollywood producing movies for RKO. So he hires Ray to direct his first movie, which is The Lift by Night.
0: Which I absolutely love. By Um, the
1: way, the original title of the movie was Thieves Like Us.
0: uh, Yeah, that was uh, the name of the book, I believe. Uh, right,
1: and which Robert Altman later remade.
0: Right. I, I, I definitely need to see that now. Because um, this one kind of blew me away. I uh, I mean, I, I realized yeah, it was it's,
1: like... It's impressionistic. Right? It's fatalistic. It's, um, it, it, it has a very haunting um, mood to it throughout the whole picture. He made the film in forty six. The film was not released until 1949.
0: Does that have to do with Howard Hughes, I'm guessing?
1: It happened to do with Howard Hughes. Yeah. And Howard Hughes loved him. Howard Hughes loved Ray. Um, He liked Ray a lot. And it was Howard Hughes that kept Ray from being blacklisted.
0: Oh, wow. Well,
1: that's good. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah. Because he really hanging around Kazan... And all the guys, he he was, and because of his political beliefs, he yeah. was definitely going to be blacklisted. But, you know, Hughes at the time was rich enough and power enough and he had enough senators in his pocket to say, you know, these people you don't touch, you
0: know. And of them was Nick Ray. Thank goodness. I mean, the thing about They Live By Night, it's, you know, it's before Bonnie and Clyde. It's before Badlands. And I also right. believe the, the first seen the opening shot is this tracking shot done from a helicopter and I think it was yes, it is. one of the first.
1: Yes it is. It is as you're boy, you're good. It was. It was one of the first shots done by a
0: helicopter. Yeah. I mean just seeing that um, from that period was impressive. I was just like, whoa, I never see I never see that from um the late forties or early fifties as much, but good you're Lord absolutely right. I mean, it's clear that
1: he was a born filmmaker from that first movie. Right. It's very clear. He he knew the camera. He knew what to do with it. He had an eye for it. He knew it. You know, it was obvious. I think that's why Hughes liked him so much, and I think that's why, evidently, that's what Hausman saw, saw in in him.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned like this feeling of, uh, you know, I, I would call like a like a brooding sense of foreboding throughout the film. Exactly. And a lot of that really has to do with just you know you know this is not going to end up well for for this couple and this couple played by um, is it Ganger Probably Ganger and, and uh, O'Donnell. Right. This is they're the main reason why this film works and kind of makes it essential. It's a it's a love story that I was fully invested in. I I, I just I could see why later on um, a filmmaker like Godard would sort of cite this movie as a huge inspiration because you get a lot of scenes of them just being awkward together and just hanging out, really, which you don't normally see. It's more about it's more plot-driven, but here you get moments of them just being together. I'd like to get
1: out and really make a day of it. Eat someplace, fine. With music and all that, just like other people. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, boy, that's just what I would like. I'll wear my gray flannel suit.
1: I'll strip out my double-breasted. Start Stratton. You can trace,
0: make a line from this movie to Breathless. You sure, can. In yeah, right. Yeah, no, definitely. And i i was not I was not familiar with uh, Kathy O'Donnell. Right. I,
1: this, I, I I haven't seen her in many other pictures
0: either. This is the only film I know her in. Yeah, I know she's in the best years of our lives, which I'm going to be seeing later this year for the William Wyler episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just I was so taken with her. I think she's really great. I mean, they're both truly great in this movie, um, and obviously Farley Granger from uh, Rope and uh, Strangers on a Train, right?
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Right. Just they're they're terrific. The. Um, and the the ro- the the criminals that that you know one of them's her, one one of them's her uncle with the eye uh, his name is Chickama I believe
1: <laughs> right, <laughs> holy I cow
0: and I think um <laughs> originally was it Robert Mitchum was going to play that role but he was sort of blown up at the time and they just felt like giving him a minor role would be uh, not a good idea
1: yeah and, and Mitchum would have overpowered the movie sure. As he tends Mitchum to. do, would have easily overpowered the film. It would have been more him than just this couple on the run. Right. Right. Farley Granger gives sort of like a sort of tragic dimension to the film that Mitchum no way could have done.
0: Yeah. No, definitely. And I feel like Ray just has this this theme going on where it's outsiders, or literally, rebels, <laughs> just trying to. Affirm themselves, or at least manage a relationship with someone or something, but they have difficulty maintaining that relationship. But just because of well, who they are,
1: Truffaut, Truffaut once said that Ray was the poet of nightfall.
0: <laughs> I wow. I
1: like to say that I like to say that that Ray was the poet of the tortured soul. Yeah, is yeah. I think that this, the the running theme, a thread throughout his best movies, is that of the tortured soul. A person, sometimes a woman, but usually a man, uh, a person who has this inner turmoil within him that sometimes he expresses through violence. Right. Um, Sometimes he expresses through some physical difficulty, abnormality, such as in Party Girl or in uh, Better Than Life. But they have this rage in them, this inner turmoil that's in them. And you see that constantly in film after film after film, in his best movies.
0: Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And here I think, man, Granger just wants to be in this relationship and make this love between them you know, foster and work and grow and evolve. But it's it's just defeated completely. I mean, it, it, it's built on a shaky foundation to begin with. Um, and he can't really help who he is. And, you know, I, they, I think the, the moment of true tragedy towards the end is when he just sort of realize, realizes that this is fatalistic. And I mean, I know he's mm-hmm. told by, um, the, the wedding, minister, because he goes over there and, uh, and pays him money and asks him to get him help get them to Mexico, and he says uh, it's not going to work. You, you shouldn't even bother, because this is doomed. And I think, like many right. of Ray's films, he has a lot of sympathy for those living outside of society, outlaws that are oh, yeah. doomed to tragedy.
1: I think Ray saw that in himself. He was an outsider. He was an outsider in Hollywood, even sure. when he was at the top of his this is amazing when you think of it. In, in By 55, 56, he was one of, maybe you can argue, one of the biggest directors in Hollywood.
0: Huh.
1: By three years later, his Hollywood career was over. Wow. Just three years later. Four years later. By 63, his directing career was finished. Completely finished. Huh. You know, he lived He lived another 14, 14 15 years. But what's in that span of eight years, from the high of, of, of rebels out a Cause, right. by eight years later, less than eight years later, his career was over. What happened? I can tell you what happened. I will, eventually later, I will tell you what happened. But what happened? Part of it was, A, he was simply an outsider. He never really fit in. He never fit into the Hollywood game. You know, sure. it seems like his happiest years were his early years at RKO, because he had people who backed him, like John Houseman and Howard Hughes. But when he went on his own, he, he was a wanderer. He never really fit in anywhere. And then, of course, it was his self-destructive activities. His drinking really wrecked him. And he's increasing drug use as well. And yeah. Um, yeah. he became too unstable for Hollywood, just too unstable. And he was an outsider,
0: you know. He was a tragic outsider all his life. Yeah, I know he collapsed on the set of Fifty Five Days at uh, Pecking.
1: Yeah, there's a story behind that I will get into, right? Yeah, I know, the reason why he collapsed, which is, I'll tell you that later when okay. I get. Okay.
0: Well, yeah. Um, I mean,
1: I I certainly. Also, I, also by the way, Fifty
0: Five is the only film he does a cameo in. Oh, really? Oh. Hmm. He does a cameo in the picture. Doesn't he also do a cameo in a Vin Vendor's movie, if I'm not mistaken?
1: Oh, well, that's his last movie. That was technically his last film, Lightning Over Water. Right. Which was basically a film of him dying. I've never seen it. It's very hard to see. It was basically a film really chronically in his last days.
0: I also think, if I'm not mistaken, because I might have read this, but I also watched the american friend when we did Vin Vendors for the podcast i'm pretty sure yes. nicholas ray has a small part in american friend yes he does yeah yeah he does too
1: um uh, became very close to him during his final days during his final years i mm. should say and by the way ray also actually briefly lived in chicago again back during the late 60s oh really huh. yeah between 68 69 he lived here in chicago again But once again, that was during his wandering years, after his career was over, and he was just wandering. Uh, I'll get into that later. But um, we can move from that film of...
0: They Live By Night is one of the great romantic crime dramas. Right.
1: It's great. um, On on Dangerous Ground, or because they both came out the same year, I believe. On Dangerous Ground and, of course, um, In a Lonely Place.
0: Which just got a wonderful Criterion release, if I'm not mistaken, not too long ago. Yes, it did.
1: It got a fantastic Criterion release. Yeah, we'll Um, start with
0: that, um, because I just saw it for the first time, and again, completely spellbinding. As I said, he's naked about himself. Um, Humphrey Bogart
1: and Gloria Graham, who Ray was married to at the time, she was his second wife. And... Um, it's a story in in this movie uh Bogart plays a <laughs> I laugh because I call it a bow tie Bogart because for some reason, starting <laughs> from that point on to the end of his death, Bogart would wear bow ties in every movie. I That's know, right. You know. Yeah. He saw bow ties were great. Look at any movie he made from nineteen fifty on to his death, he just was always wearing bow ties. So <laughs> I don't know who told him it he, <laughs> he looked good in it. But um He plays a screenwriter. Yep. And, um, Hollywood screenwriter who hasn't written anything in a while. Um, you're not quite sure is. This is a movie of ambiguities. Yeah. Vagueness. You can't really tell. Is it because he has a writer's block or simply because he's too difficult to work with, which is one of the keys in this movie? Like Ray, he was too difficult. He's too Mm -hmm. difficult to work with. And so he, um, is accused or is a suspect in a murder of a, of a young hat check girl at a club. Right. Now, the, weird thing, the movie is not really about the murder. No, it's not. The, mur- the murder is just a device to get the two main characters together. Because even, even the solution of the murder is almost practically thrown away in the last five minutes of the movie.
0: Yeah, it feels like a MacGuffin almost. Literally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. We forgot about it, There's a murder. Oh, yeah. Let's wrap this up real fast. Right. It's it's just a device mm-hmm. to get the two characters together, Bogart and Gloria Graham. And Bogart is a guy. This is one of the most complex characters Bogart ever ever played in a movie. How many times do I have to tell you not to vacuum when she's sleeping? She can't hear nothing. She takes pills. He's very complex. He's arrogant. He's sarcastic. Uh, he clearly feels he's superior to everybody else. Even when he's accused of murder, most people would go nuts. He doesn't seem to care. Right.
0: And that's that, fact, that makes he you question encourages him a little
1: bit. It. Yeah, he almost encourages the police to believe he's a suspect.
0: Right. The, um, the best scene possibly in the entire film takes place when he went when the detective is visiting bogart and his wife for dinner oh, oh, a great thing. oh my a god great thing. yeah you're driving up the canyon your left hand's on the wheel yeah yeah go ahead she's uh she's telling you she's done nothing wrong you pretend to believe her you put your right arm around her neck you get to a lonely place in the road and you begin to squeeze you're an ex-GI, you know judo, you know how to kill a person without using your hands. You're driving the car and, and you're strangling her. You don't see her bulging he, eyes.
1: And notice carefully, there's a key light Yeah. that comes on in Bogart's eyes. Right. And he gets this possessed look, like he's possessed. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's enjoying it. He's getting off on it. Telling how this murder could have been convicted, and you just watch the soft key light that comes on his eyes, and then when it's over, the key light disappears, you know like he's okay, he's out of his trance beautiful scene
0: yeah, a beautiful that, scene talk about a guy who knows lighting, and I'm, <laughs> we'll get to bigger than life right. in particular, which might have one of my favorite shots in the history of film um, but yeah no this 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 is another Keeper for me. I'm I'm excited to rewatch this time and time again. It's, Bogart in this is phenomenal. Like this and Treasure of Sierra Madre might be my favorite Bogart performances, just because they're a little more complex, um, mm-hmm. and layered. So I mean, here throughout, you are sort of wondering, is this guy mentally unhinged or what's his deal? And is this lo- th- Is this new love in his life going to finally ground him and? keep him afloat but no well, the, it know.
1: seems like it could because yeah. you
0: know he yeah. and one thing we have to add he has a violent temper sure has a
1: very violent temper and we find out that he has been involved in domestic abuse cases in the past he has a very violent temper mm-hmm. and and but it seems like finally when he's in love he falls in love with um gloria graham it's almost like he's redeemed yeah you know he beca- he actually begins to work he can write a screenplay he can she she changes him he changes her right right but at the end, love is not enough exactly
0: yeah love and is that's not enough that, that's it's bold i mean even with they live by night, the way that ends i don't know maybe just seeing darker endings in this time period is kind of jarring but in the best way just because it's like it really tackles the themes on a very existential level of you know the possibilities of just hey guess what not a happy ending every time just like life <laughs> so yeah
1: I mean the ending is purposely vague Sure, I don't want to give away the ending but we don't really know what happens at the end does he come back does he apologize? What happens? We're we're left. I mean, it's over for her. Sure, right. But we don't know about Bulgart. Does he just keep wandering? We don't know. By the way, the background as I said Ray at the time was married to Gloria Graham, mm-hmm. who was a a piece of work herself. Um, they were married for a couple years. They constantly kept breaking up, getting back together, breaking up, getting back together. Finally, they broke up for good when Ray came home and found Graham in bed with his son from his Whoa. first marriage. Now, to make matters worse, he was 13 years old at the time. Whoa! To make matters even worse, <laughs> oh, God. Um, ten years later she married him. Oh. Tony t- Tony Tony Ray, and wow. guess what? Six degrees of separation. My no uncle kidding. knew Tony Ray. <laughs> Holy cow. My uncle knew Tony Ray. My uncle who lived in Los Angeles, passed away years ago. But My uncle, I don't know where he met, but my uncle met, was friends for many <laughs> years with Tony Ray. Um, and, and he would tell me sometimes stories that he, he, he would tell me about his father, you know, and, and according to him. Hmm. The thing that really destroyed his father was his addiction to hashish.
0: Oh wow! Really? Huh.
1: Yeah. When he got hooked up with hashish, that was it,
0: that was the end. Um, no, I'm going to blame it all on Dennis Hopper. I'm sure that. <laughs> well, Dennis Hopper again I'll, I'll destroys stories about Dennis Hopper,
1: Dennis Hopper,
0: yeah, Dennis yeah.
1: Hopper, yeah,
0: yeah. But you um, know what's interesting for me about In a Lonely Place too. Um, a book I had to read for, oddly enough, no surprise, an existentialism class in college was um, Albert Camus' The Stranger, and the, th- the themes are a little similar to some degree because in that, it showcases how judgmental society or those in power can be, not on the basis of what a person actually does, but simply by how he behaves, and mm-hmm. you know the the detectives here really do think he's you know a criminal because of just his behavior. It's very odd. It's exactly yeah. And so I think it's there's an interesting correlation there between the 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 book The Stranger and this, and uh, also having a very ambiguous ending. Um, but yeah, I mean, Ray also plays with expectations with like kind of a subtle POV shift from you know Bogart to to Graham. And about halfway in and I didn't really realize it that first time when I uh, or you know I didn't really realize I' watching it for the first time that's kind of what it does and also there's a, once again they talk about race
1: sexuality there's, there's a very I don't really think this got past the censors, but there's a very brief scene when Bulgar comes in and Graham is Graham is having uh, getting a work up by a masseuse. Mm, a female masseuse who is clearly gay you can Mm -hmm. even use the old expression she's butch and the the masseuse I don't know how they got away with this line we can remember the exact line but the masseuse makes it clear hey look if you're not interested in Bogart if you're tired of him I'm interested in you
0: oh that's right
1: Yeah. you know Come with me. Or she doesn't say that bluntly, but it's it's a I, I wish I could make, but she makes it very clear that she's interested in Graham and that, you know, leave Bogart and be with me. Mm-hmm. And it's a throwaway scene because you can cut that scene out of the movie. It doesn't it doesn't you don't lose anything. But it's an odd scene. It's a very <laughs> odd scene. And you're going like, Why is that in there? You
0: know? Well, I like, found it interesting. Is Ray telling us something? I found it interesting rewatching Rebel Without a Cause. Sal Minio has yep. a picture up in his locker of a man. Of Alan Ladd. Oh, of Alan Ladd, Alan okay. Ladd. <laughs> yeah. yeah. is Alan Ladd. You know, now,
1: Rebel Without a Cause, but he, he is. He mm. is the first gay teenager ever right. portrayed in a movie. I think. F- blatantly, that. he is. He, mm-hmm. he, he blatantly is. The way he looks. At James Dean, sure, it's unmistakable. It is love, deep love, right? Yeah. And Dean, he accepts it. He he doesn't. Any other guy would like, say, "Well, you're looking at me like that." Right. D- yeah. Dean doesn't do that. He, and then also, there's this one thing. Maybe I'm reading too much, but there's always that scene when Dean almost goes goes into the women's washroom by mistake. Hmm. And hmm. He, there's a the thing he goes in, and then he gets laughed, and then he he walks out, and I go like. Now, why would he have that scene in there, <laughs> you know? And, and it, what, is, what is Ray telling us, you know? Mm-hmm. And clearly, it's, it's a menage a trois between James Dean, Natalie Wood, yeah. and Sal Mineo. It's a menage a trois. Right. No,
0: absolutely. And that's a, it's a, an interesting dynamics throughout that entire film. And same goes... Also, th- it's
1: interesting... Well, what went on behind the scenes When Ray was Ray was having an affair With Dean and Natalie Wood At the same time
0: Whoa And also possibly With Sal Mineo I am going to have to this read it, There has to be a biography And I, ha- I hope to read it Whether it's an autobiography yeah, there, Or a biography it, it,
1: I'm, I'm make this up <laughs> And then that really pissed off Dennis Hopper in the movie Because he was also Dating Natalie Wood at the time Oh my gosh So There was a lot
0: of weird things Going on behind No the kidding <laughs> Of really about a cause, is really something. <laughs> wow, we could just turn the podcast into yeah. the Nicholas Ray podcast and just tell different stories every episode. <laughs> you can, you know. I got more stories about Ray. Oh, sure he, he had a he had a fascinating
1: fascinating life. It sounds um, like um, it. a matter, I mean, matter of like Nicholas Ray, near his near near his end, before he died, he said, "I'm not gay because." I slept with more women than men. Hmm.
0: <laughs> Alright. Uh, was he aware of the term yeah, bisexual? It, you, know. you know? I don't know. Hmm.
1: But see, but once again, I, I go into what director is more naked about his life? If you look at you know, Revival Cause. Right. And if you well, of course, I've seen this movie a bunch of times, and then later when I found out was going behind the scenes, and then when you see the film again, when you... Re- oh! <laughs> I get it. Right? I see it even more now.
0: Yeah, and i got to say, on dangerous ground, let's get to that, because... Oh, yeah. Robert Ryan, what a guy, what an actor. This, The more I see of this guy... The more I want to see. Because, <laughs> um, yeah. God, there's again another there, torch is so. Another exactly. Torch and is so redeemed by love. There's another incredibly dark and subversive scene where he, a, an, an informer, is refusing to talk. And he just proceeds to beat it out of him in a way that so I was just with, like yeah. so taken aback by. You know, you're going to talk. I'm going to make you talk. <laughs> But yeah, this one plays a little bit like a Samuel Fuller film. It's very intense and, and kind of caustic, and it sort of throws you right into the action with, like, handheld cameras during foot chases, and just, there's some really compositional variants in this, like, because there's, he'll shoot some Dutch angles, but, you know, there's also claustrophobic alleys, and... There's just a really interesting setup to this film, and then it changes completely halfway. Exactly. It, yeah. it
1: changes completely into a different movie altogether. Right.
0: And I like I like both movies. I mean, I've seen this one twice. Yeah. The first time I was kind of like, uh, I don't know how I feel about where it goes, but the setup is great, and I, I adore uh, Ida Lupino, who's another director, yeah. I have to say. I have to see a lot more movies of, too. Actually,
1: she directed a few scenes in Undangerous Ground when Nick Ray got ill. Oh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And she she took over directing. Um,
0: because she was a... Right, she was a comedy director herself. Yeah. And she's fantastic you know, in this. Um,
1: yeah, it's... it's um, Once again, the torch soul. As I said, the torch is so. Redeemed by love. You know. and And, and thinking about... Robert Ryan you know this, this Robert Ryan is one of those actors who was so good for so long You took a lot of people just took him for granted yeah I can see that and it wasn't until it wasn't until later when people began to look at him again and look at you go like my god I didn't realize how good this guy was
0: yeah no I mean him in the setup too that's another great uh, uh, which I just saw last week the oh really the turn to classic movies oh so on classic good. movies. I just watched it last week. yeah that's, um, that's one I wish I could have seen. I know I played the music box for like uh, one of those festivals. I don't think it was the no- Noir Festival, but oh uh, that's yeah and, and by it, the way, here's
1: this, something that's interesting about Ro- Robert Ryan is because hmm. he played so many tough guys and bad guys. People would think that he was a hardcore conservative no, he Robert Ryan was an out and out leftist liberal.
0: Sure, okay. His
1: entire life, um, he he was. I mean, even to the point that his ho- he would be picketed at his house. <laughs> wow! Because people thought he was like a commie, you know.
0: Oh, that's crazy. And
1: that's true. You know, he, wow. he was. He was. He was a big supporter of Eugene McCarthy. And was at the Democratic Convention in '68. He came to support McCarthy. He he wasn't. He was um, he was really quite a person. Right, really quite an interesting guy.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting when like the general public seem to believe base. I mean, because he's such a good actor, they'll believe he's yeah. you know adopted that persona in real life. It's almost it almost reminds me of uh, Aaron Eckhart in. Uh, in the company of men Like uh, yeah, p- People were c- Coming up to him On the streets And yelling at him Just because he was So believable As that character In that movie
1: Well it, it just reminds me The stupidest thing When during the Democratic convention uh, Bradley Cooper was there Oh and wow And conservatives Got mad because Woman well, you're the American sniper guy What you doing there Oh, oh come, come on <laughs> Jesus
0: Christ Oh people <laughs> I don't know. Well, Ryan people, people. Ryan really he specialized in these sort of damaged vulnerable types in a lot of these movies from what I from what I've seen so far anyway, but he has like this internal conflict going on. And you can sense yeah. it without him overacting. It's a lot of good oh, yeah. body language. Yeah. It's all
1: exactly in, in uh, once again going back to in a uh, dangerous ground is all in his face. Yeah, his body is there. He doesn't have to say it, he communicates it. That's a hell of an actor. He communicates it, and you don't have to be told what he's feeling. You can see it just by the way he stands.
0: Ex, yeah, that's absolutely true. And uh, another nice surprise here is the score Bernard Herman. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Bernard, yeah.
1: You know, I think this is more or less when he really started to write for movies. I don't think he did much before then. He did some. But this has started in the early 50s. That's when he really began to start getting to his groove, right?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, the the film kind of ends with, like, a predictable sort of optimistic love-saves-all kind of feeling. But if you think about it, too they have to deal with you know, the fact that uh, Danny was killed and, you know, there, there's, there's a little bit of a, you know, darker undertone going on, not just like, oh, love conquers all and My brother's name is Danny I know he has to be caught but if Brent catches him, he'll kill him with you, he'd be safe please promise me he'll be safe Danny isn't like other people I want to do what's best for him. Anything I can to help him. He's my brother. But I don't want Brent and the others hunting him down like some animal. You'll see that they take care of him, won't you? You will, won't you? Please promise me. It's certainly nice and that right, he came and back, right,
1: Lupino has to deal with, deal with the fact that what her brother had done.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, no it's it's I I I know that um I think it was I think it was Howard Hughes who uh he wanted the happier ending as opposed to Nicholas Ray who wanted a really downbeat ending. It might have even just been uh Robert Ryan just drives away and that's it. But yeah, well, you know, Hughes was by that time kind of heavy-handed. Sure.
1: And everything he, you know, I mean, they, I mean, he would take films and recut them, and shoot them, and sometimes they wouldn't come out for years, like test pilot, no jet pilot. I mean, he, he mucking around with everything, you know, which reminds me of that movie come out later this year in which uh, Oh,
0: Warren
1: Beatty? Warren Beatty. I keep forgetting the name of the movie.: Me too, generic. <laughs> yeah, uh, gosh. but I love the trailer. Yeah, I thought you it was know? great. I like the trailer, and I'm just happy to see Warren Beatty on the screen again. You know,
0: yeah, and the I, guy I, from—I uh, miss him. I, you know, the guy—he's—he's he's, his name escapes me, but the guy from *Hail Caesar* who stole the show in that. Uh, right. Yeah, I'm glad he's in that too. I want to see more from yeah, him. Yeah. I, I just want to see Beatty. I haven't seen Beatty in years. You know, in
1: years. You know, on the screen again. Yeah. You know. And he's been wanting to play Howard Hughes for at least thirty years or more. Mm. Something. So uh but we're going off the track, but that's we can talk about our use of a filmmaker maybe later. I don't know. <laughs> At some point, maybe, yeah. Um you know, know Hell's, An- uh, Hell's Heroes. Hell's of Angels Hell's Angels. It's pretty damn good.
0: Um so yeah, after On Ground, there's a couple of Robert Mitchum movies that I I did not get to see in the myths here. But um yeah, I guess
1: Yeah, he was he was still Ray was still wandering around. As I said, he never really fit anywhere. He, he left RKO, I think, in 50, 1950 to become an independent. And also because it took so long for They Live By Night to come out, he was making other movies during that period. Mm. You know, okay. So he was very prolific in that time. Like I said, it was a John Wayne war film he made for RKO, Flying Leathernecks, with Robert Ryan right? also mm-hmm. in that film as well. And then um fifty five is when he came and they made he made the seminal film, which is Rebel for the Cause for Warners.
0: Oh yeah, but before that, a year before that, we do have one that uh I just saw for the first time that is also getting a nice blue ray. Oh, I'm stupid. What am I thinking about? <laughs> it's of okay course, Johnny Guitar. Yeah. Hello Char. Tr- hello true color. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> Yeah,
1: well, um, uh, True Color wasn't... It, well, it was color. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't know if it's really true. It was True Color and for Republic, and um, which is coming out on Blu-ray next oh. month, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From all the films. Yeah, I should be getting that. Um, but uh, once again, it, okay, it's a Western but it's not really a western
0: you know i love yeah. the first 30 minutes the setup of this is fantastic where you get to meet you don't everybody. like the rest i i like it i it, it's one of those though that starts out really strong because it's all in one environment you get to meet all the characters and i kind of like that kind of a setup it almost it's it's funny it almost made me think a little bit of the Hateful Eight um, because there's the, sta- yeah, yeah. the, okay, yeah, the stage, coach yeah, okay, the stagecoach comes in, and then they're like trying to bu- because there's a big storm outside. They're trying to, you know, bar the, the door, and make sure it doesn't open. <laughs> um, I was like, I didn't th- no, I don't think Tarantino ever cited this as an influence, but there's some touches in this. That I was like, huh, that's that reminds me of Hateful Eight. But anyway. But, um, but also,
1: for people who have never seen the picture, one thing I have to explain, which is yeah. accident attentional, Johnny Guitar is not Joan Crawford. Johnny Guitar is Sterling Hayden. Oh, my right? oh God. He is f- That's fit. his name. Okay. Joan Crawford, her name is Vienna. She's Vienna, right? Vienna, yeah. And her chief opponent is another woman, Emma, who is played by Mercedes McCambridge. Right,
0: who I'm not and, as crazy about I gotta say well Mercedes
1: Cambridge is is a um, is an acquired taste yeah <laughs> I know she's an she's an acquired taste either you like her or you don't I I, I like her you know I, I really like her in Giant she's she's great sure
0: I yeah but yeah. but
1: um, she's an acquired taste she's over the, over the top uh-huh. most of the time, you know. <laughs> um in in your face in a way most of the time. And if you look at the and and the film Johnny Guitar is is gender bending, literally, you know. Mm-hmm. Movie. Um, Joan Crawford is always mainly dressed like a guy. Right. You know. Um and you can argue that the real love, or the conflict, is the real love is between her and Mercedes McCambridge. <laughs> you know,
0: uh, yeah. you can argue that. Yeah,
1: you can argue that.
0: Well, that's right? that's the first and, truly established conflict early on, and it right. seems like they are going to shoot each other. But <laughs> it's it's always waiting. For, you're always waiting for the confrontation. You're not building no
1: depot here. That's for Vienna to decide. Vienna decided now get out get out all of you that's big talk for a little gun you can't shoot all of us
0: two of you will
1: do you don't have the nerve try me
0: stop pushing Emma put down that gun Vienna put down the gun
1: down there, I sell whiskey and cards. All you can buy up these stairs is a bullet in the head. And it's, it's deliberately Baroque mm-hmm. and over the top. And it, even, the, first of all, something that Ray is never credited, but he was a great visual stylist in the sure. movies. A great visual stylist. And particularly in Johnny Guitar, you notice that usually the, bad, the good guys are wearing black. Right, well, another subversion. And, right, mm-hmm. and the bad guys are usually wear more colorful c- colors. Right, mm-hmm. and it's it's no way meant to be realistic.
0: At oh all. yeah. Even even just the like I said the the true color process is like the colors are so bright. There's almost like a 3D quality to it. Like Joan Crawford's lips are ready to jump right off the screen. They're, they're so <laughs> red, <laughs> <laughs> which means I can't wait to see this thing
1: in Blu-ray. It's gonna pop. Oh up. yeah, I can't wait to see it.
0: Yeah, Can I wait to see it. The, the contrast is really special throughout. I I I was really taken with how this film looks and visually I just I th- I think it I, I grew a little restless with it um, after you know s- some certain things are you can, established yeah,
1: you can argue it's a bit too long yeah
0: just that's probably the long. only it could, it criticism have I have cutting. yeah
1: you know maybe 10 minutes could have made it a little tighter right Right. you, could, you can argue that because I have the same feeling too I said it's, it's dragging on a bit too much it could speed us up right um, but I think it's intentional because I think Ray just wants to indulge in it, you know. Sure, sure. In in, in the bizarreness of it, the weirdness of it all.
0: Hmm. Yeah. No. Um. You know, Sterling Hayden in particular, just his introduction, and then when he start finally starts playing the guitar, uh, you know, he's just one of those mysterious characters that just, you know, shows up right there and, um. What's that line that he has where it's like I'm a strange, I'm also a stranger here or something? You're that right. mm-hmm. yeah, I just I really really liked seeing him in this in this world in this universe and his character of course has some reveals later on, but uh yeah, no, I just and the final the final shootout, you know, talk about being a, f- a complete feminist western. Uh, I mean, the the strongest late. I mean, you mentioned Sterling Hayden is probably the, the star of the show for sure, but the strongest, the, the leaders are the women. They're taking yeah, control I mean, of the group. The, 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 the title is misleading. The yeah. The title
1: is very misleading, right? Yeah. Because he he is not really the lead. Of course, it's Joan Crawford. Mm hmm. Um,. And Mercedes of Cambridge, they are really the focus of this picture. As I said, it's called Johnny Guitar, because even even the first time I saw the film, I always I assumed that Joan Crawford was Johnny Guitar. That's what right. Because
0: know. You know, even on the poster, you know, Vienna, she's prominent right. on the poster.
1: Right. It says Johnny Guitar. So you go see the movie, and you go like, what, this guy's Johnny Guitar? Then who are you? You know? Yeah. But but you know it it just adds to the weirdness of the film. As I said, for folks who haven't seen it, it's it's a totally baroque, unreal picture. It's almost a pastiche, yeah, of a western. It's not so much a real west. It, it's no way realistic. You know, it is it is a pastiche. It is a fantasy. It is. I don't want to say it's a spoof. Uh, no, but it kind of kind of a little winks its eye at the audience. You know, yeah, I, as if, if it's saying, you're not really buying all this, are you?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like a stylized fever dream in a way. Just if it, it's, yeah, it's just weird, but not in a way that it's like I don't know. It's it's certainly not like a Zucker Brothers take on a western. It's not blazing no, 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 saddles. No, no, <laughs> it's, it's, no,
1: it's it's all played straight. It's not. Yeah. it's
0: not a comedy. It's played straight. It's not.
1: No, but he plays with the conventions. Anybody listening, don't don't, don't misinterpret it. It's not a comedy.
0: He plays around with the conventions and subverts your expectations throughout. Though I would say,
1: Um, they definitely subvert your expectations. Whatever you're expecting, it ain't going to happen.
0: Yeah, yeah, including the the the, uh, tension-inducing scene of Joan Crawford possibly getting hung. Oh yeah. boy!
1: Yeah, that's you're right.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's very good. It's it's something I need to watch again now that I know what I'm in for. Um, I have a feeling it's going to yeah, play it, it, even stronger on a rewatch.
1: It, it was it was a big hit when it
0: came out. It was a
1: big hit, and I'm curious to think what audiences thought of it at the time. Did they take it seriously or did they think it was a hoot?
0: Yeah, that's a good call. I mean, be interested to look back on that one and see what the general reaction was because my reaction was like hmm that was different (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah no like i said sometimes you know when you watch a movie a second time knowing okay this is going to play with my expectations pretty much throughout i can sort of settle in now i don't have to necessarily like be hyper aware of like whoa this is happening that's weird um, the and second also, time I watch it, I'll be expecting names, like it. Like
1: Johnny Guitar, Vienna, and there's another character who's called the Dancing Kid. Yeah, um, these are names and titles. I, it's <laughs> you know, I wonder when he was shooting this picture, were they laughing to themselves, or you know, what you know, did they seriously? What went on?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm very curious because he he seems to go right up to the line of absurdity at times with this. Um, especially especially with uh, McCambridge. I mean, maybe she is like this in most of her performances, but it's... Yeah, it <laughs> she hysterically, like, rasps and is very in-your-face with how she delivers her dialogue. Um, yeah, McCambridge didn't do a whole lot of movies, but...
1: They were choice. The ones she did, and and for people who have never seen Mc, Mc, Mercedes Cambridge, I can tell you've heard her. Yeah, because she dubbed the voice of Linda Blair in the Exorcist. Oh, really? Yeah, that's Mercedes Mc Cambridge, and actually, she successfully sued Warner's because she never got she got credit, and they underpaid her or something. She was supposed to get more money. And she sued, and she won. But that's her. That's her vo- That's her dubbing when Linda Bear is possessed. You know, Hello. That's Mercedes McCambridge.
0: Holy cow. Let's go to the classic man. The uh, right. The well, one that everybody the, the has seen classic, hopefully. But if anybody anybody's seen Nicholas Ray movie, I
1: would dare say the one they've seen is, of course Rebel Without Cause, which was of course a sensation when it came out. Uh, a film that really one of the first movies that really dealt with teenage angst and anxiety. And I am a huge Huge James Dean fan. I think he was one of the most phenomenal talents I've ever seen in a movie in films. Um, You can argue that he's too that he was mannered. Um, He kind of overdid it, but I can't think of another actor who could express terror and rage Mm -hmm. and angst as well as he did. And there's so many great scenes in. In Rebel Without Cause, and two, I remember it's when, of course, he's in the police station.
0: Oh God! I and love the cop that. says,
1: "Just let it out," and he just starts wailing on this desk, or you know, there. Yeah. And I say, you, "You, can." I understand where it's coming from. That you know, I can't articulate it. I just have this rage in me. And then the other scene, which is a great scene, is when you know he he just wants his father to be a man. Show me what it's like to be a man. You know, show me
0: something. That's know. that rubs me and the wrong way it, a little bit, just because he tells his father to hit his mother once just to show her who's boss. I think that you can't just go around proving things and, and pretending like you're tough. Yeah, that's right. I, you, and you can't, even though you got right. you look a certain way. That, you can't. That's right. You're absolutely look. The, you're you feel, absolutely right. You're not listening to me. You're involved in this just like I am. Now I'm going to the police, and I want to tell them I'm know. involved in this tonight. Oh, I don't want, Did anyone see you there? Um, did, did anyone see your license plate? I, I don't know. What about, I don't about the know. other boys? Do you think they'll go to the police? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why should you be matter. the only one, one involved? Well, far be it for me to tell you what oh, to do. You, you know, I think that. Nicholas Ray really demonstrates A gift for blocking and Composition to really Showcase the shifting power dynamics And tensions within the family
1: When he sees his father in an Apron, you know Uh, And he can't You know, once again He cannot articulate it, you know How could you let yourself be emasculated Like this, you know And, you know, it's Extraordinary performance, Bob Extraordinary performance, and it's a chamber it's a chamber drama. Not really much happens. It mainly takes place within a day or two, two days over mm-hmm. over two days. And it's really about a relationship of three people who are trying to find themselves. James Dean, of course, um Salminio and um Natalie Wood. And when I you look at Salminio and once and once again, first time I saw the movie, like I didn't catch on that, you know, he's supposed to be gay.
0: Radio. Right,
1: neither of course, did I. He and, and has a picture of Alan Ladd, you know, in in his in his um in his locker when any but any other guy would have had, I guess, Marilyn Monroe or somebody.
0: Right. He has Alan Ladd. You yeah. know, it's and Sal Minio and, and, is the cutest puppy murderer I have ever seen. Like he's, I and that's that's real. I was really taken aback by that too. It's like, oh, he, you know, he just killed some puppies, and that's why he's in the police station. I'm just like, oh my god. I, I, must, I must tell you once again. I'm a
1: six degrees of separation. I must tell you the true story. When I, the last semester I taught at Columbia College, I was there for four years. Mm. Screenwriting class I had. She's still a great friend of mine. She lives in Los Angeles now. I had a student, and I was reading the names the first day. Her name is Hope Minio. Huh. And oh. I said, you're not related to Sal, are you? And she said, yes, I am.
0: Oh, my gosh. Wow.
1: <laughs> wow. You know, you know, and yeah. um it, it, it's, wow, you're related to Sal. Um, but, you know, it's just three people. And, of course, once again, like in they Live By Night, you know it's going to end tragically. Mhm. You know... And if you read the sign, you can see who's not going to make it. But but um, there is this sort of doom tone, doomed tone about these three. You you know that what they're doing. They in a way they don't know what they're doing. They have really no idea what they're doing. You know. Yeah. Again, lost but souls. They, you they're know? just lost souls getting lost.
0: Yeah. You know? As and that's that's what whatever being a teenager involved, is you know? about <laughs> to some degree. Being right, which is being what,
1: which is why this film resonated. Yeah, with teenagers, you know, they said, "Wow, this is the first film that really gets and uh, what we are." And also, this is one of the first movies of uh, I call, and he really did it in his following movie. We'll, we'll get into that in a minute, folks. Oh yeah. Um, but, but the movies that deal with the lie of the American dream.
0: Mm mm-hmm. hmm. Starting in
1: the mid 50s to the early 60s, there were so many mo- movies that came out that the Eisenhower years were all happy and white picket fences and the perfect family and it's the post war years and a two car garage and everybody's happy. And what was going on behind this facade was angst yeah. and worry and terror and people being lost, you know. And there were many films like this that came out, such as Rebel, the film we're about to talk to next, Violent Saturday, Strangers Where We Meet. Revolutionary Road was sort of like a more update, tried to do it, and I think failed miserably, <laughs> you know.
0: <laughs> but but Rebel on a cause In a post-American beauty kind of world, though, like that, that plays like... Uh again we got to do this sort of theme but mm-hmm. to hell with american beauty. You know, you have this era that really tackled this theme head on and f- first and foremost, you know, um I just I'm I'm pretty impressed with just like the sh- the social commentary that Ray was able to tackle early uh, in the 50s because the 50s it, it really changed the way people thought about movies. I I it's a transitional period. And I mean it was also the physical space. We had more and more films being
1: shot in color. Yeah. Uh, now we have Cinemascope or mm-hmm. Technorama. Or yeah, Technorama. Yeah. Screens were bigger, you know. Um so yeah things are changing you know uh, and of course it was make up of television people with more and more people were staying home to watch the idiot box as we mm. used to call it then <laughs> and so how do we compete with this Let's, let that because step up Real the game. cause is shot in cinemascope and and actually from that point on most of Ray's films were in scope he liked it you know right. he, he he liked what he could do with it how he could frame it uh, you play with the framing and the composition. So, more and more films. I, I'm trying to think. Was a film he didn't shoot in scope after uh, Rebel? Maybe. Yeah, one. I think it was uh, uh, Went Across the Everglades. That's not in the scope. Hmm. Huh. Oh, no, oh, maybe it is. I think it is. I think maybe it's in RKO scope or something like that. But yeah, he loved scope. When he saw the possibilities of what he could do with scope, he stayed with it.
0: Yeah, as well he should. I think uh, he excelled, and his films evolved in that regard, in the way they look, visually. Um, Yeah, and and there's just little touches. I mean, again, attention to detail is something I really respond to. You know, you you, kind of mentioned the the bathroom scene. I also really love, before he goes out to, uh, you know, play chicken, essentially, (laughs) you know, he's confronting his parents again he gets frustrated runs out of the house but before he leaves he grabs a big old slice of cake <laughs> for the road <laughs> before he leaves the house and I just you know that that in another world that's maybe just a throwaway scene but it not I don't know it just adds to the charm. Just to you know, keep that in there. Whereas maybe another director would be like, "Ah, oh, let's cut that. That's not necessary. That doesn't add anything to the character." But um, yeah. No, I mean, jeez, James Dean in this is just yeah. I mind mean, because blowing. once
1: again, that's why I read something once that Dean and Ray w- later got into a spiritual marriage, and I read hmm. in quotation marks, and I. I don't really know what that means. I don't. I don't know where exactly where he got it,
0: <laughs> but they had a kindred spirits, marriage. I guess. I don't
1: know. It's up to your imagination. Uh, but they well, clearly bonded. They clearly bonded together. It's too bad they never worked together again. You know, certainly. I mean, he made three movies, Dean, and then he was out like a light. Yeah, that was it? You know, it was it. Three movies, and you know, i know three of his movies. On the big screen, I have the James Dean, that's Big Warner's James Dean set that he came out with about a year and a half ago, which is basically a coffee table thing of all three movies of his on Blu-ray. And, uh... Uh... Yeah, he was an amazing talent.
0: And, you know, the, the three leads in this movie all sort of met very sudden and tragic deaths, really. they yeah, You know, I mean, that's... Nobody really knows what happened, you know, with Natalie Wood on that boat, and I know. Yeah, Sal, nobody
1: really knows. Nobody yeah. is still a mystery. And then uh, Sal Minio who had, had a hard life, was killed in a um, in a robbery.
0: Yeah, I know. I well, went I, bad. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I think he was trying to prevent the robbery or do something. He was. Pl- he was playing yeah, the role of good Samaritan. It, it, it,
1: yeah, it's still a bit confusing exactly what happened. I, I know that, unfortunately, the police, for a long time, dismissed it as, literally, as a, as a gay killing. It's, oh, he got involved with some guy, he he knifed him, right. But no, it was a robbery. It was a robbery that mm, went okay. bad, or he tried to stop somebody getting robbed, or... It's still somewhat vague exactly what happened.
0: Yeah, but even even watching... Rebel Without a Cause as a 30, 38 year old man, uh, it still provokes a great emotional response for kind of its mad as hell outlook at being a teenager. And I can see, you know, j- future generations getting something out of this. I still no, think this, you can no, watch it, this yeah. movie and get something out still of it. The still plays. Yeah. It's still relevant. It's still relevant
1: today. What the themes and issues that that film deals with. Not only was in the fifties, and the sixties, and the seventies, and the eighties, is today. Yeah, it's still relevant today. Absolutely. The clothes may be different, the cars may be different, the hairstyles are different, but the issues are still exactly the same.
0: You know what's very prescient and kind of ahead of its time in, in terms of theme? It's bigger than life. Ah uh, uh, well. Wow. Douglas yeah. Sirk meets Oliver Sacks, in a way, because yeah. I I, ha- I happen to love Douglas Sirk films and just kind of that, you know, really, uh, again, high-contrast melodrama, I guess you could say, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Oliver Sacks was this really interesting neuroscientist who was studying the brain and pharmaceuticals and all sorts of things and uh, pioneered one of the first treatments for... Uh, it was, I don't. It was a form of Parkinson's, but it, it, it was covered in the movie *Awakenings*, um, which is a very interesting story. When you know, you think of uh, what Oliver Sacks has contributed as a doctor. But anyway, uh, with this film, you got James Mason, you got Walter Matthau, and this is another truly special film. That again, I'll say it again: to hell with *American Beauty*. <laughs> When you have something like Bigger Than Life, it's yeah, extraordinary. Once again, this
1: is the, one of the seminal films of, as I was talking about earlier, the, the false, the facade of the American dream. Yeah. This is the American Nightmare. Um, this film truly is the American Nightmare, which could have been a nice title, American Nightmare. <laughs> um, James Dean plays a teacher, James Mason, uh, but yeah. Who, I'm oh, sorry that's say james Dean? James yeah. Mason plays his teacher who um seems to have the perfect life, the perfect wife, the perfect son, the perfect house. everybody in the school loves him. What could go wrong? Well, he's in financial trouble mhm you know he you know he's trying hard to keep up appearances because everybody else is keeping up appearances, and there are clues like. He has this nice house. When you go in the kitchen, there is this rusted out water heater. Right. Good call. In the middle of his perfect kitchen. Yeah. That reminds them that, you know, everything is not so perfect. And he has for- he is forced to take a second job.
0: Yeah, it's like uh, a taxi. Working as a cab dispatcher. Dispatcher, yeah.
1: Because, and the, the beautiful shot of these row of yellow cabs on the street, you know. And he um, has to keep a secret from his wife because he doesn't want her to know. He doesn't want to break the illusion. you know. And so he starts getting these sharp pains. Um, and they get worse and they're getting worse. And finally it gets so bad that he collapses and he goes to the doctor. And it's not exactly clear what he has. It's not really that important,
0: right? But they they mention it,
1: but it's it's very rare. Yeah, yeah, and, but it's it's potentially fatal. So they they uh, prescribe to him shots of cortisone. right? Okay, or pills. Let's just say he starts taking pills. Yeah, and the symptom seems to go away, and it seems to work. Okay. Unfortunately, he begins to start <laughs> taking too much. Very Once true. Addiction. Something that Ray was very familiar with. Addiction. And there's a nasty result, which is megalomania. He, James Dean, I'm sorry, I keep going Dean, James Mason um, begins to first, it's not just being arrogant. He begins to go beyond that. Yeah. And boy, at the end, he goes really beyond that. Particularly one line he says, which is <laughs> <laughs> the most classic line ever in a movie. Um, oh, you can and say it. <laughs> it, it uh, now I'm trying to remember the line. No, it's not God is not dead. It's. God was wrong. God was wrong. Right. <laughs> I saw that in the movie that it gets one of the biggest laughs. God was wrong, right?
0: Well, wow, a laugh build of up discomfort, it, I would think.
1: Right, the build-up to it, and it's the perfect punchline when you see the build-up. And eventually, it, he slips into insanity. Yeah, it's you know? total
0: psychosis.
1: Right. And it ends with a really knockout fight scene. <laughs> it's, it's pretty Oh, impressive. my God. I love that. <laughs> Between him and Water Matthau. Yeah. Which is pretty pretty impressive. But, once again, the torch soul. so. But this time, it, it's, it's also because he's trying to keep up appearances, the pressure of trying to live up to this ideal, which is impossible. All
0: right. You've been so
1: erratic, so unreasonable, as if you've been drinking. But Wally found out why. It's the courtesan. Oh. You've got to believe me. You've got to stop taking it. Oh
0: my God. Yes? Did you forget what you were going to say?
1: I forgot. Wally knows, doesn't he? He knows that without cortisone, I'd be dead within the year. What sort of a fool do you both take me for? You can argue that's what caused this illness that he starts getting. And then, once again, but as I said, it manifests itself physically through these pains that he begins to have. These sharp pains. Um, it's an astounding film. It's visually stunning. He does some really incredibly, once again, in scope. Mm-hmm. Some marvelous framing and composition in this picture. Um, is one scene when um, really towards the end, where Mason is bed, but he's in total darkness almost.: Yeah, a shadow just falls over him, while we see other ca- characters on the extreme of the frame you know lit.:
0: One of my wow. favorite shots now in all the cinema is when James Mason keeps delaying <clears throat> dinner for his son working on the same math problem and disputing with him whether or not he could he could even have a glass of milk and the wife racing to get him this glass of milk and Mason comes out of the bathroom or the other room and hovers over his son and there's this shadow cast on the yeah, wall yeah oh i was like that there you go that's that's why i love movies yeah <laughs> Um I uh, god this movie is just I mean because the problem is still relevant today with people becoming dependent on all kinds of medication but you know we we really do have an epidemic when it comes to um opiates and painkillers and mm-hmm. people becoming essentially just immune and having to keep taking more, uh, tolerant. And, you know, there's just a a dependence on running to the doctor and, you know, just please take the pain away, take the pain away. And it becomes this, it becomes like, um, Sisyphus. It's really just pushing the boulder up the hill (laughs) constantly. And, uh, you know, there's p- plenty of people... I think anybody who has suffered from addiction can get something out of this movie. And it doesn't have the... Um, <laughs> the, the kind of overwrought uh, intensity that something like Welcome- Requiem for a Dream has, especially in the final act, where it's just, like, punishing the audience visually, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, the one thing is the final conclusion that were are we meant to interpret that the psychosis was being created by the cortisone itself because he's potentially well um, in the end well that's an interesting question
1: because we understand originally it was supposed to end tragically Mm -hmm. and the studio forced him to write to do a happy ending however as you said Is it really a happy ending? Yeah. Ray brilliantly said, okay, I'll give you a happy ending. But it's not really that happy. And once again, we go into a vagueness. Is is everything really okay? You know, is everything all right? We're not really sure. Which is (coughs) not surprising. This film was a flop. Uh, the really, the box office oh. because because audiences didn't want to see the fact that their perfect world which they had created or something we're living in was based on a on a lie a falsehood, you know. Um, so no, this this film was not successful at the box office. It was not at all. Um, and Ray personally was going through trouble. He. Um, in terms of his personal life, uh, between this movie, Bigger Than Life, and and uh, Rebel Without a Cause, he went to England to mm. promote Rebel. And he met Gavin Lambert, who later went on to become an acclaimed screenwriter in, in uh, L.A., huh. in Hollywood. Uh, but was a film critic back then in London. And they spent the night together and hit it off. And Ray told Lambert, if you come to L.A., if you're interested in pursuing, come to L.A. And Lambert did. He followed him to L.A. And Ray gave him, a, a, w- worked it out and got him a job as a screenwriter at Fox. And he lived together for a year. But Lambert left him because of Ray's drinking. He couldn't take it. You know, wow. he was drinking too much. And on top of that, he was cheating on him with men and women. So um, Ray was going through this weird period at the time, you know, Sounds coming like up it. from the high of Rebel Cause. And then he goes straight into uh, the very next year with um, Bigger Than Life, which flops.
0: Well, I don't think audiences were ready for what this movie was trying to convey at the time. and. You know, just just the fact that you know James Mason has to keep upping the dose, essentially, of cortisone because he gets kind of a high from it, and that's yeah, you know, like that's essentially become it becomes mania, and I I imagine Nicholas Ray can identify with the idea of maybe having to rely on a substance just to feel normal, which could right, have been exactly what happened with him in drinking, but. I um, right. I also find it, like, there's something that affects me very personally, where anytime there's a sequence in a movie where doctors are trying to figure out what's wrong, because I've been on that journey a couple times in my life, so, like, sequences involving MRIs, or barium, or spinal taps, or anything like that, really makes mm-hmm. me feel almost like a PTSD kind of a feeling, because... I went through that a couple times once when I was like, uh, you know, an adolescent where I was having these weird stomach problems and it was just this constant mystery. So let's put him through this test. and Let's put him through that test. So like in a movie like this and even in The Exorcist, those sequences really frightened me. <laughs> so, well, well,
1: no, because the doctors are portrayed as pretty cold people. Yeah, um, Yeah, they're not the friendly doctor. Uh, it's something. Believe me, I've had medical problems I've been going through the years, sure. and and what I have discovered, two things I've discovered is number one, doctors have no idea what they're doing. That's Seems one limelight. thing that I've learned. Doctors really don't know what they're doing, and number two is that doctors will only do what's convenient for them, <laughs> and what they've done many times before, even though it may be the wrong thing for you. Yeah. And that's something I had to learn the hard way because I was, I was given the wrong medicine.
0: Oh, man. You
1: know, I was given the wrong medicine and, you know, with a lot of side effects. And, and you know, it was weeks. And I said, this is not working. And then finally, oh, well, gee, we're going to take you off this and we'll put you on that. And I go like, well, why do you give me this the first time? <laughs> Oh, well, we wanted to try, and, and I found out, they gave me the, because they give it to everybody else.
0: Oh, jeez.
1: Whatever you got, we'll give it to you. What, everybody's different. Be right for me. Yeah, Everybody's different. This may not be right for me. Yeah. Wow. And there's two things I learned. There's two things I learned, which is a great lesson, folks. If you're out there listening, great lesson, two lessons. Doctors know what they're doing, and whatever they tell you, they're doing it for their own convenience. They really do not care about you. Mm. Doctors really do not care about
0: you. Yeah, and that's that's definitely portrayed to some extent here, um, yeah. almost almost exaggerated in something like *Requiem for a Dream*, where they don't even make eye contact with their patient. Um, yeah. But uh, I, also financial pressures. It's you know y- you can sort of deconstruct this movie in any number of ways, where you can look at it as a statement about masculinity or identity. But there's also class issues because, you know, you mentioned him having to work a second job. But then there's this this really, again, incredible sequence with him deciding, let's spend all our money (laughs) Um, and treat his wife, which is very... When he's in the manic state. Yeah. You can argue
1: that what he's going through is a form of bipolarism or bipolar sure disorder. sure I can see that because he gets manic and then he starts spending money he does not have yeah you know even his wife is like D- what are you
0: doing I can't we can't we're, we're barely getting by uh, don't worry about it don't worry about it don't worry about it and he's dressing you know he's dressing his wife up in these expensive clothes and it's kind of reminding me a little bit of vertigo <laughs> it's a little creepy
1: oh Yeah, Yeah, maybe Hitchcock saw this before he made Vertigo It's very possible
0: Very possible Yeah, no, I just and Oh God, that his speech To all the parents in the classroom
1: If the Republic is to survive We've got to get back to teaching The good old virtues of hard work And self-discipline And a sense of duty My friends I tell you, we're committing harakiri Every day, right here in this classroom Mister, that young man ought to be the principal of this school. And, and he ends it with this almost distorted tight close-up of his face. Yeah, as if he's a monster. Well, he, he has become a monster. Certainly. And, well, one thing, one thing I like is is that he's talking to the parents, and most of the parents are horrified. by what he's saying, except for one guy, you know, <laughs> <You're right. laughs> he's like. He's like, yeah, you're right, yeah. <laughs> you know, we'd always find amusing, you know. But right, it always ends with that. Really, and and w- one of the things about early CinemaScope was that there's something. It was called the CinemaScope mumps. Hmm. They later got rid of it by actually when they switched to Panavision, they managed to work it out. But it was this weird saying where if you ever see a film in early cinemascope, it it, it, it looks fine when you look at it, but actually there's a slight there's a distortion in the middle of the screen. So if you look at the edges of the screen, they look slightly squeezed.
0: Interesting. Slightly
1: squeezed. And then in the middle, there's like a bump. You know, and this is early CinemaScope, and you'll see this in in like if you watch a DVD of an early Scope film, you notice that the edges of the frame seem to be squeezed as it pans. Okay. And <laughs> so, what happens was that if you did a close up in CinemaScope, it tended to broaden the features. Wow. It made your face a little wider, right? Well, that's now, interesting. I suspect he knew that, which is why when he goes for that tight close up. Why does his face look so distorted? Like it's spread out almost. Like he's a monster.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's visually it's visual language again. He's he's telling you exactly what you know. He's distorted essentially. So the, yeah. it's it complements. That's the thing about Ray. He thinks about these kinds of shots, and they always complement the themes, the character, the story, and you know where this thing goes. In terms of Abra- the, the story of Abraham and his son Isaac, Whew. Mm-hmm. Huh. He, th- again, Ray was there before Bill Paxton turned that you know that that moment into an entire film called Frailty. Which, <laughs> oh. That yeah, it's basically and also,
1: like and also also notice the that final scene. The, the, the room, the house is dark now.
0: Yeah if It was brightly lit And everything Now
1: it was dark And sinister Right You know
0: Now this is A fantastic movie And um, when you're Watching this folks uh, t- Keep your eye out For one of the students In the classroom scenes The one who's Angry with his mom And drawing a very Dark picture Is none other than The beaver Jerry Mathers Oh really Oh yeah. <laughs> And also it's, it's on
1: criterion It's a great criterion release. Yes Um, and by the way, I I don't mean to plug, but, but Criterion did a really nice thing. I, when I first bought it, uh, there was a flaw in the DVD. It would stop. It would get stuck. Ah. And, uh, I sent it to them and they sent me a replacement. There you go.
0: Thank you, Criterion, for all your hard work. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. (laughs) You're right. So I know there are a couple of titles worth mentioning that I have yet to see, but absolutely will. Which two do you want to discuss before closing things out? Here? Um, well, let me... Uh, do Party Girl is is on um, is Warner Archive.
1: Uh, Robert Taylor and Sister Reese and Lee J. Cobb. And once again, The Tortured Soul. Hmm. Redeemed by love. And once again, physically, we see it because... Uh, It takes place in the 30s in Chicago, and Robert Taylor is a mob lawyer. And he walks painfully with a limp. Uh, We find out later on in the movie when he was a kid swimming in the Chicago River, I guess, his leg got caught in the gears of a bridge. And so his leg is mangled. And through this love of a showgirl, um, Sid Therese, he learns, he begins to realize he has sold out himself and his soul, and even goes through painful operations to get his legs straightened again. Of course, trouble happens when he tells his boss he wants to leave, and Lee J. Cobb, who's the gangster, doesn't want him to leave. But once again, there's all the themes, the familiar themes, the tortured soul, the redemption by love, um, the tortured aspect of the, or the relationship. And, and in this film, um, uh, Robert Taylor is married to a woman. They've been separated. But he's married, so you have that other problem as well. You know, marital problems. He can't. He wants to get rid of his wife, but he can't. You know. Mm-hmm. So it's and it's visually. Once again, it's a visually stunning film, even though it was all backlot stuff and shot on the set. The French loved this picture, um, particularly Godard. They loved this film. And it's stylish. It is very stylishly made picture. Uh, like I said, it's on Warner Archive. Pretty good looking DVD, and that's something I would recommend. Um, Absolutely. Well, I'm going to
0: pick
1: and, it up. And, and, then, and then this is '58. By '59, his career was over in Hollywood. He he was just too hard to work with. His drinking was too much. Studios find him hard to work with, and so he went to Europe. And spent the next few years in <clears throat> next few years in Europe, making movies for studios. Um, he made a film called "Bitter Victory" for Columbia, with Richard Burton, a war film. And then he signed up with, and I mentioned previously, "Savage Innocence." But the thing, interesting, he signed up with um, Samuel Bronston, and Samuel Bronston, of course, is the big mega producer who was making these epics in Spain, such as El Cid and followed the Roman Empire. And he signed up with, with Bronston to make King of Kings, the life oh, of Jesus yeah. Christ. the epic. As mm-hmm. an epic film, which it could be called Rebel with a Cause, <laughs> because because it is, it is a subtle movie. It is not bombastic. as un, unlike the other biblical epics of the time. It's very subdued. Particularly the first half of the movie is visually gorgeous. Hmm. What he does. And some of this visually gorgeous. And interestingly, and I just noticed this while I was watching it, Jesus Christ, who is played by Jeffrey Hunter, and James Dean are wearing the same clothes. Whoa. Now, I should say not exactly the same clothes, but the exact same color combination. <laughs> Different oh. styles, of course but the same color combination. And I say, hey, wait a minute. A Ray Touch. Jesus Christ is a rebel. Was a rebel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know how anybody can make that connect. I just noticed that. And I say, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty smart. I know that connection. between.' And the
0: two. Ro- Robert Ryan is in this? and he, Robert Ryan, once again. Last time right. he worked with Ryan. Yes, he is. Ryan. And Rip Torn is it, it, Judas. It, it, <laughs> right. Wow.
1: It's a good film. It was derived as I Was a Teenage Jesus. But it is a very beautifully subtle movie, and I highly recommend it. I really do. Um, It's nowhere as bombastic um, or, like, the greatest story ever told, like, the over of it. It's nothing like that. It's a very almost down-to-earth, low-key biblical epic. And I really highly recommend it. And, um, and then, unfortunately, his last movie was... Well, no, technically it was not his last film. He did make... I'll get into that briefly. But um, his last studio movie was 55 Days in Peking. And what happened at the time was that he went back to work with Bronston. King of Kings turned out well. <clears throat> Sorry. He worked with Bronston. Once again, his drinking was a problem. And unfortunately... Ray was hooked up with a quack doctor.
0: Oh, no. Not and again. And the quack
1: doctor crack doctor, had a great cure for his alcoholism. Amphetamines.
0: Oh, no.
1: Oh, no. And he had a heart attack. He was several weeks into shooting and he had a heart attack. And he had to leave the project. And the film was taken over by the second unit director, Andrew Martin, who was a trump. I should do a film. On, I should do a show on Andrew Martin, who was a tremendous director and second unit director. He directed the chariot race in the other Ben Hur, <laughs> not the one that's out now. Right. And a wonderful second unit director. And he was second unit director on this on this picture, and he took over directing. And um, I don't know what scenes were directed by Ray. Well, the one thing Ray is in, he had to have directed. And Ray, in the movie, plays a camera. He plays the American ambassador in Hmm. a scene in a movie. He's in a wheelchair. He's got a fake beard, but it's Ray. And um, that was it. After that, his career was over. Nobody would trust him anymore. Oh, man. Um, He just wandered around trying to get projects made. And then, as I said, he was living here in Chicago. And he ran into... Dennis Hopper, and they were here for the '68 convention. And Dennis Hopper said, hey, um, there's a university up in upstate New York called Hopper College. I could hook you up, and you can teach filmmaking there. Hmm. So he went up there, and he got the job, and he stayed there several years teaching film. And um, he did make a movie while he was there with his students. And I forgot the name of the movie. It's, it's called We Can't Go Home Again. I think that's the title of it. We Can't Go but
0: Home Again. But I don't
1: know. I, what's the title of it? I think, no, that's it. You're right.
0: You're right. It's We, we can't, can't Go, go home, home Again. again. Yeah. We, right.
1: And unfortunately, I do not know. Where that film is, it's sort of like an experimental movie. Uh, it premiered; it was shown at the Cannes Film Festival in 1973. Oh wow! But Ray kept working on it up until his death in, in 1979.
0: Yeah, it, it's his interesting because foref- he collaborated with his students. It's it sounds a lot right. like what Brian De Palma was doing with his students early on. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. But that hmm. was De Palma at the beginning of his career. This was Ray at the end. Yeah. I do not know what where is the film. His fourth wife. Technically wife in quotation marks. Her name was Susan her name was Susan Schwartz. They lived together for the last 10 years of his life. They weren't technically married. <laughs> but she basically owns the picture. I don't know if she's still alive. I really do not know. Uh, if she is, she still has it. If she is dead, I don't know where the film is. Hmm. Nobody knows. Right? Well, this detective work. We, we can't go home again. I don't know. He made a short film in the early 70s. And then his last movie, the sort of collaboration he made, as we mentioned earlier, with uh, Vim Vendor's Lightning Over Water, which is, I've seen parts of it. It's a very meditative film about the end of a life. And, and Ray never really physically recovered from his heart attack. He, mm. he basically just got worse as the years went on after his heart attack. And with the booze and the drugs, and I said he eventually died in
0: 1979. It's a sad end, you know,
1: yeah. to a really, really great filmmaker.
0: He has uh, become one of my favorites now. And, uh, man, he, he's a one-of-a-kind voice. In, in cinema history I mean he's made a number of masterpieces early on too I mean geez, how many people just hit a home run you know with their first film right out of the gate like that very few you know very few and, and he had such humanistic qualities throughout all of his films right
1: and you know he made 20 films in his career yeah. 21 films good half of those are tremendous you know and the rest are interesting <laughs> you know, you can't say that about a director Sure you know, Half are great and half are interesting And I can't you know? wait to watch more And Right, and you know, God bless him I mean, he was, he was a great filmmaker And at least he had the opportunity to make movies And they're still here and we can watch them And um, hopefully one day Savage Innocence will get a release I am dying to see that picture hmm. You know um, And um, Bit of victory I saw many years ago, but that was a cut version. Right. The original longer version has been released, or is available now. It's about fifteen minutes longer, and maybe one day the film, Cisco Film Center will show it, or it'll be shown at the Music Box, uh, because I would like to see that original longer version.
0: Yeah i I would I would die for the opportunity to see. Mm. Any of his films on the big screen at this point. Um, and, you know, once again, to bring it all full, full circle, uh, God bless the music box in the Cisco Center. <laughs> yeah. And you if know, th- you're interested in any movies we talked about, they're all available on DVD.
1: Yeah. Uh, even 55 Days in Peking, there is a really good looking British Blu ray, which I have of it. Uh, one caveat, though, it is region two.
0: Mm-hmm. If you don't mm-hmm. have an
1: all-region player, you won't be able to play it. But uh, I, it's available, and I have it, and it is—they did a wonderful restoration work, job on it because for years it was um, in public domain and it looked bad and was pan and scan. But this is in, you know, the centimeter, centimeter framing and restored, and it's gorgeous looking.
0: I gotta say, They Live By Night, it needs a Blu-ray release. Uh, yeah. I I haven't uh, seen... On
1: Dangerous Ground needs a Blu-ray release.
0: Yeah, that too. I just... I found, like, They Live By Night on Amazon, but it was included with, uh, like, another film noir film, and I can't remember what it is. It has something with the word street in the title. I can't remember what it is, but... <laughs> Was
1: oh, just, uh, side, side street, street. is a side street. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. they has Farley Granger in it too. I've seen that. Right, I've seen that too. Right.
0: Okay, so Sergio,
1: um, what, there you what, go.
0: What would be your th- top three favorite Nicholas Ray films? This is this is this is a tough one to narrow down. Uh, well, I, I will say, of course, "Bigger Than Life," "A Rebel Without a Cause,"
1: and I would I would go with. Um, um, Oh gee, if I had to pick one more, I, I will go with his first movie. I, I would say, yeah, um, you know, in a lonely place. But see, see where he began, so and how he started out. So I would say, thieves. Um, uh, I mean, um, they live by night. Oh gosh, we. we I keep saying I will keep wanting to say thieves like us because <laughs> it's original title. Um, they live by night. Yes, I will take those three,
0: and that's pretty much how I feel. Although. Uh, yeah, I, I am so torn between *Rebel Without a Cause* and *In a Lonely Place*. But I'm gonna, mm-hmm. I'm gonna go ahead and make it *In a Lonely Place* bigger than life. They live by night. Mm-hmm. I'll do that because yeah, okay. most people have, I guess, have seen *Rebel Without a Cause*, and I do agree it is a tremendous film. Um, and but I do want people to see Bogart potentially at his best. Um, and the Criterion release of that is spectacular. So. Which I have, and it is spectacular. It right. Is. Really, oh, really good. Man, this was great, Sergio. Thank you again. Thank you. I, like I said, I love doing this. Me too. I love talking about directors, I love talking about movies. Uh, we'll pick another director and do it again. Absolutely. I greatly look forward to that. Uh, I always learn so much from you. Um, and very quickly, you don't have to go on a long uh, rant about this, but I had to bring it up. Simply because uh, the last episode I did with Nick DiGiulio on Martin Scorsese, he mentioned a publicist by the name of Frank Casey. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And he said, and I quote, next time you talk to Sergio, ask him about Frank Casey. (laughs) So I'm very curious to
1: know a little bit more. Frank Casey was the publisher for Warner Brothers Right For many years And I tell you something else you should talk to Is is, uh, Bill uh, Bill Swiker Bill Hmm. Swiker hated that man Guts I found this out later (laughs) Um, Absolutely hated his his guts And and, and ironically He was a foul racist homophobe Who was a confident gay man Oh wow From from Schweiger, uh Frank Casey and and what happened was it was a screen of a Warner Brothers movie and I brought a friend of mine and he let my friend in but he wouldn't let me in oh jeez and I had the invitation you know <sighs> dear Sergio we're having a screen at Disney and, and <laughs> what and 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 uh, I showed him the letter and he said you're not Sergio you know I thought i a Mexican right and I took the letter and I balled it up and I threw it in his face. And I said, and they must have heard me in the screening room. And I said, this is my direct line kiss my black ass, motherfucker. And I walked oh out. God. And everything they heard in the screening room, he went like, ooh, what happened out there? You know. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Yeah. Frank Casey. What a character. And then he, you know, and he died. He died what I would call an alcoholic death, and no. what I mean by that was that he was found dead in his in his apartment, dead for days. He had been drinking, and oh, I think he fell and hit his head, and he you know bled. And that's an alcoholic's death. Wow, that's how that's how a lot of alcoholics die. I mean, they die and they're they just they have no friends.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They have no acquaintances. Nobody. And he just sit in the room and rot until people melt their body or something. Oh, and the police come in and they find a the body. And that says a lot about him. He was an awful person. He was an awful, awful person. That's... Th- you know, how he was the head... How he was with Warner Brothers for all these years, I have no idea. Yeah, he, he had sounds,
0: pictures. Oh, my God. He sounds like a real jerk. What a yeah, character. Yes. What a... <laughs> but, again, I think the reason why Nick... Brought him up is just because of he's kind of legendary and he's got all these stories surrounding him. It's like a like there's a mythology a, a, around this guy or something. Yeah, but then was then yeah he was very close to
1: Erv it who was the big cop gossip columnist back then. Mm. And he yeah he was back then. Sure, he was a legend and people knew him. And once again he was a publisher for Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers. You know, back when, when studios here in Chicago had their own publicity offices, <laughs> you know. So some were nice, some were awful, right. you know. And Frank Casey had been there since, I guess, the jazz singer. I don't know. He was there forever, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, he was just an awful, awful person, <sighs> you know. Uh, except that the very, very few people actually talked to him, you know. Yeah. And he was a foul
0: guy. He was a foul person. Oh, well. And if there's one oh thing well. we can
1: learn, but it's funny, it's funny
0: that Nick, Nick asked you to bring him up. <laughs> I know. My God, I'll but, get Nick for that. Okay. Yeah, you should. You totally should. Uh, it's just, yeah. I mean, he mentioned him on that Scorsese episode, and I was I, I was laughing because he told a story about um, Frank Casey's reaction to uh, the screening of This Boy's Life. I guess he had uh-huh. been drunk. But he was, like, reacting... Oh, which
1: was which was almost all the time, yes.
0: Yeah. And he was just reacting out loud to the abuse taking place um, between Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio in that movie. Uh, <laughs> just, like, viscerally reacting, constantly swearing, and just like, oh my god, what a yeah. character. And just, yeah. just obnoxious, though. That's... Oh, boy. Yeah, was. yeah oh boy. he was just, oh, yeah and be, you yeah. know between it, 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 between Nicholas Ray now and Frank Casey people just, just be careful with your alcohol consumption yeah please please please, please. Uh, it's you, you know
1: it's funny i you know i had a I had a, a relative who was an alcoholic mm. and and um, you know i because of that i don't like to be around drunk people same here i can't stand to be around drunk people because uh, people think it's funny, you know. It's, Usually it, if you're it, around and pe- someone's drunk, people tend to laugh, oh, he's funny, and I think it's terrible. And I tell people, unless you have lived with a drunk person or you've been around a drunk person, it's not funny.
0: It's right. not funny. I completely
1: agree with that. You know, so I can't laugh at this. I, I just want to get away. It's not funny. Yeah. You know, so if whenever I see someone who is under the
0: uh, influence, I feel sad for them, you know. Yeah, it's not like That's Arthur. It's sad. It's just not like Arthur, people. No,
1: no. Yeah, you know, it's funny. If, if you look at... You look at, like, the thin man. You know, when... Mm-hmm. William Powell is drunk all the time. But he's charming, and he's witty, and he's funny, you know. But he's drunk all the time. Yeah. You know. And and now, in the later series, he got off the booth. But in the earlier films, he, he's drunk all the time. And Arthur, he... Right. I mean... It was a different time. Sure. It was literally a different. It was literally a different, different time. It's funny. I, I was telling this to Eric. Um, Twilight Time, which is one of our favorite DVD release title, uh, companies. Sure. Uh, they just released uh, Tony Rome and Lady in Cement, two Frank Sinatra detective movies. That I saw oh. as a kid. My father would take me to see him. And there's a scene in the movie. You cannot get away with this today. There's a scene in the movie with Raquel Welch, who was the hottest chick on the planet. Back then. She's, she's in the trailer for Zitty and Cement. She's coming out of a swimming pool. And she sees Frank Sinatra. She sees this old, aging guy with a bad toupee. And the line she says to him is, because she's so turned on by him, she says, well... Should I scream rape now or file charges later? Oh, my god. Now you can't do that. Oh, <laughs> you, know, god. It's just, you can't say it like that today. Whoa. And it's not just this Yeah, baby file charges later, yeah. You know oh, I, my you, god! You just, but it was '68. It yeah. was a different time, folks. Exactly. It was it was you know, I and 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 <laughs> it, it's funny, I, I, you know, I'm sure you probably, you've done a film probably on Oliver Preminger, right? I'm sure oh that.
0: yeah, that was that and, was one, and, another one of my favorites.
1: Yeah, and and in the movie a Vice and Consent*, which I think came out in '62, oh, right. that film should be out on Blu-ray. So good. There's a scene that takes place in a the gay. There's a shot. The scene takes place in the gay bar. Yeah. Now you have this, 1962. It was the first time. A gay bar had ever been seen in a movie or anywhere, right? And I wonder, what did audiences think mm-hmm. when they see this movie? I'm sure, I'm sure there was a <gasps> an audible gasp, you know. Oh, and I'm sure the people didn't even know such a place existed. Yeah.
0: You know, I, I, I bet. There, was I,
1: this, there were places where gay men would get together to hang out with other men. You know, and and I and even in that scene, I mean, Preminger, he, he has the camera because the, the bar is in a basement, so he has the camera. Right. Is is um, tilt shot, tilting down over the over the shoulder shot, so we see this guy, and so we're behind him, and we're seeing what he's seen, and Preminger holds that shot for a good thirty seconds.
0: You know. Yeah. Because well, I, he knows the impact that scene is going to have I still, to the audience. I still gasp at uh, the scene in the apartment where the doctor is slapping Shirley MacLaine around. Yeah. You know, and I, I just can't imagine how people must have reacted to that scene in the theater when that movie first came out. It's like, jeez. You're just not used yeah, to seeing that. Right. It's, it's um... um you know,
1: it was a time in which, I, which I, I still say, and I will say this always, that the films of the 50s and, I mean, sorry, the film of the 60s and 70s was maybe the greatest period of filmmaking ever. And that's because, not because from a nostalgia point of view, because I saw the films as a kid. My father would take me to the movies to see The Dirty Dozen or Were Eagles Dare or oh, stuff wow. like that. But also to the fact that was the time when films really began to become adult. Yeah, and and they were actually dealing with issues, and now films are just geared younger, Mm -hmm. you know, for kids, you know. And you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to see what adults were seeing. I didn't want to see children. I wanted to see what my parents wanted to see. Yeah, same here. That's what I was into. You know, know, and I I didn't want to
0: see fantasy. I I think that my dad showed me more films. From the 70s than any other time yeah. period, you know, and it's because I grew up in the 80s, and geez, <laughs> this is another bleak period yeah. of new movies. And, and
1: you know, my father took me all the time to R-rated movies. He, did, you know, he, he didn't think about it. You yeah. know, he would just take me. Oh, let's go see this. Okay, I, he took me to see the Wild Bunch. Sure.
0: You, you, and
1: I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like. Your, <laughs> was your like, oh, dad I was getting
0: killed, you know. I like, gotta say, uh, your dad and Nick's dad, awesome dads. <laughs> well, you see, I had a cheat.
1: Mm. I had a cheat because you see, my father was a cop, see, ah, and he could see any movie for free. Nice. And so what happened? You, you show your badge. So what he would do, and he did this all the time. All well, my father loved, particularly he loved westerns. He loved sure. loved westerns. And action movies. And and so what happened was um, he he would he would take me and he put me in line and he would give me the money and he'd say, I see you inside.
0: <laughs>
1: you know? <laughs> because he would go around and he would show his badge and they would let him in. Nice. See. So then I learned to begin to say, Hey well, how can I start getting the movies for free? So he would <laughs> So he was so that's the cheat, right? Because he always goes. He would see movies, because, and I think they still do it. I remember Colin um, Suter. Um, uh, he told me that who um, has been on your show. We all know yes. Colin, and Colin said, that he was uh, he worked for a while in a ticket um, in a theater selling tickets. It was a regular thing. If a cop or fireman came in, you let him in for free. Wow, you know." Well, that's yeah, hey, because it was,
0: it was it was like it was
1: it, 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 like a reward for doing a dangerous job. Sure,
0: yeah. Well, I gotta say, Sergio, this is was another delight, and again, thank you, thank you so much for taking some time out. Uh, we'll plan again for another director potentially mm-hmm. earlier in the year next year. Sure, that's fine with me. Yeah, absolutely, that's and fine maybe. With me. Um, what are the show times for to sleep with anger? Because I I might come out. Oh gee. Well, I tell you what. Go to
1: fiscofilmcenter ah. S i s k e l fiscofilmcenter dot org, not dot com dot org, and you'll see our complete schedule and the times and the dates.
0: Terrific. Okay, man. Well, get well. All right. um, I'm really looking forward to I'm, your I'm, return. I'm I swear to God, I
1: I'm, I I am I am. I'm there. Yeah. I'm already recovered. I am there. I'm happy to there. hear that. I'm already really. recovered. I had not getting into detail. It wasn't life or death, folks. It was not life or death, but it was serious. But it mm. knocked me through a loop. I it bet. knocked me through for a loop. But it, it it was not life or death. It was not. And, and so um, there you go.
0: I'm glad you life fully is recovered. like that. And yeah, uh, life is like that. It sure is, and I'm I'm looking forward to your return at WHPK, of course. And uh, uh, Yeah, once we get the bug bug situation out, in case you have well... Oh, that's right, the station yeah. Has, the station's
1: closed until mid-September because of this bug bug situation. So, yeah. It sure doesn't have a WGN, but um, <laughs> yeah. But also, the clo- it's closed because they're doing all kinds of updates at the studio, too. Long overdue updates, that's the other thing.
0: Right okay man well let's be Nicholas in touch and uh, well I'll let you know when this episode comes out should be in a couple days
1: very right. good I'll post it up everywhere and thank everybody for listening and
0: I hope you got something out of it and me too God bless Nicholas Ray <laughs> same here and thanks again Sergio right. we'll be in touch sure thing okay have a good night you got it bye To directorsclubpodcast dot for all the upcoming episodes and of course the uh, archives of um, everything from episode one to the present. And of course, I encourage you to send me an email with all your feedback, questions, criticisms, recipes to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com most importantly I want you to check out the now playing network for a bunch of great shows like Final Emergency Supporting Characters Tracks of the Damned Fresh Perspective Movie Madness and my side project Pop Culture Club and of course this fine show so thank you so much everybody for listening Um, I believe I said this at the intro but I am taking a couple weeks off So um, the next time we'll be returning officially for this podcast will be probably around mid to late September with another great returning guest. You might remember him from the Nicholas Winding Refn episode. Chris Olson of the Pop Culture Lens podcast will be joining me to talk about the incredibly expansive career of Roger Corman. We have a lot to cover for that one, and I couldn't be more excited to talk with him and uh yeah so stay tuned for that in uh mid to late september this is um considered my vacation time end of august into uh, september so i hope you'll go back to the archives and check out the many episodes but i bid you a day.
1: That's crazy.